Back in episode 87, I sat down with a proud Wiradjuri and Wallawan woman, Teela Reid. Teela and I recorded this initial conversation in December last year, 2019, where she referred to 2020 being the year of reckoning for Australia and its connection to our First Nation people. And we are seeing that reckoning come to life. With the Black Lives Matter movement here in Australia picking up voice, I was of course eager to sit down with Teela again to continue to unpack, to sit in the discomfort, to be faced with my own ignorance and to learn. For her and for so many here in Australia, for generations, this isn't a new movement. This is an intergenerational battle, a daily fight. In this conversation, we talk about the reality that health statistics for Indigenous people of this country are worse than for white community, and yet we seem to dismiss this truth very, very quickly. We talk about the spectrum of what is tokenistic versus real action in acknowledging Aboriginal culture here in Australia. Teela is once again generous in the face of my ignorance. I plan to have more and more of these conversations on this platform and want to say a huge thank you for the ongoing generosity and fight that Teela brings. I know you soaked up so much from that initial uh, interview and, and yarn with her. And if you haven't, please go back and listen to episode number 87. But there is so much more action that we need to take. There are many more questions we need to ask. And there are many more conversations and actions that we need to step into. She calls us all out to write to our local members to show up where we are and to use the platforms that we have. Soak up the wisdom, the strength, and the tenacity of Teela Reid. Teela, it's such a delight to be hanging out with you again. Yama, thanks for having me. Oh, look, it's um, of course. <laughs> and uh, I feel like there's plenty more conversations to have. Um, one of the things last time we spoke, there was so much reflection that I took away from that conversation. And I know uh, most recently that it's resonated with a lot of people. One of the things I did take away is is acknowledging the land that we are meeting on and gathering on. So I'm coming from Yugambeh country here on the southern part of the Gold Coast, which is just a beautiful part of the world um, and love sharing this space with you. Yeah, I'm I'm coming at everyone um, from Gadigal land and I'm living and working on Gadigal and Bedigal country in Sydney and I've been isolated here for, for most of the period since our first podcast come out and um, this is going to be, you know, such an interesting yarn to unpack because the the week you launched this podcast of yours, um, you know, the truth tellers of our time, it was the same week that I had my first essay published, um, 2020, the year of reckoning, not reconciliation. It's time to show up. Um, and that's been the lens really through what I have viewed, um, you know, this year through. And as we all know now, um, things have panned out the way they are, in particular, the conversation around Black Lives Matter has absolutely been elevated. When you use that word reckoning, because uh, it was something we we actually did the interview, we're only just saying we did the interview at the end of last year. I put it out um, the week of Australia Day on intentionally. Um, or Invasion Day. Invasion Day. 
yes, um, intentionally for us to have more of these conversations. And that word reckoning uh, is what you used in our conversation and obviously was a massive part of, you know, of your headline of your essay, uh, reckoning, not reconciliation. Is that something that, um, like, where did that come from for you, that sense of reckoning? Was that you could see the writing on the wall? Was it a, a kind of a, a war cry of what we need to do? Where did that word come from for you? Um, look, it's funny because I, before I wrote the essay, I was having lots of conversations with activists and campaigners and 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 feeling a sense of frustration with the term reconciliation. And one of my very good and very close friends um, that I had a really deep conversation with was Thomas Mayer, who's an activist and a campaigner as well. Um, and I started throwing about this term reckoning and I remember um, trying to write the essay and, um, and thinking of this term and I sent him a draft and, I, you know, he's very, Thomas is very upfront with, with his feedback and I remember thinking, shit, maybe this isn't how I meant to unpack it but um, it was constructive feedback and I guess my my way in which I was trying to express it and back to where my feelings of reckoning was coming from was that, you know, all my life I've seen this term thrown around, but none of, none of that has actually changed things structurally for my mob. And so um, to me it was really about you know, how do we start to create structural change? And if that means reckoning, what are we calling for? And, you know, that's to me about accountability, self-determination and power over our lives. And if we look at how people, even everyday Australians, use the term reconciliation, it's, it's tokenistic. And, you know, I am beyond tokenistic conversations and action. It's absolutely time for us to show up um, to shift the power structures in this country. And, um, you know, through those conversations and activism, you know, as difficult as they can be, I mean, you know, I went on to publish my essay um, and Thomas um, went on to write um, his book, uh, Finding the Heart of a Nation. And really, you know, both of those stories and pieces of writing are calls for reckoning, are calls for structural change. And I think one of the things that Australia was lacking um, was a roadmap to how we invite Australians on this journey. And for, you know, as young activists um, and grown up in activist families, um, we had defined a moment through 
the Uluru Statement that didn't change the history of our activism. It just drew a line and it drew a line and it said no more symbolism. We're not copying symbolism. We want substantive structural change. And in my view, through my own personal story and what I learned around the campfire in my with my pop, I conceived that lens through the reckoning um, and that's about showing up every day. One of the things we have we need to do in Australia is really look at our identity as a nation and from a psychological point of view, identity is the stories that we tell about our past, about our present and about our future and the beliefs that we hold in those three and there are huge gaps in stories that we don't know, we don't hear, uh, we don't, and even if they're heard, they're downplayed or ignored, whitewashed. Um, What are, if you're happy to share on a personal level, what are some of the stories from when you talk about the campfire with with your grandfather, what are some of those stories that you heard from from your family, from your ancestors growing up that maybe weren't shared by, you know, the school system or the curriculum, the stories we didn't hear in this nation? Well, a lot of those stories are straight up just grounded in truth-telling. You know, it's not whitewashing our history or elevating um, white stories. A lot of what I learned around the campfire was about, you know, the spirits in the land and how, you know, to show respect and Yinjimara to to my kinship, to my eldership, um, and what protocol means to us as blackfellas. And that those stories um, in some ways and in many ways are really sacred to us and they're not stories that are just free range um, for for white Australia because they link us as Aboriginal people to our ancestors and to our country. And I think one of the things that um, I learned from the power of that truth-telling around the campfire was in many ways, you know, the history of my people being oppressed by systems, by being massacred on our country, by not being able to speak our language, but then going home, um, you know, and hearing about how language was such an integral part of our lives. Um, And I think that when I reflect on those times as a child in my community, um, it was also about how kinship and, and living and ways of living for us is very circular, you know, it was about how we place ourselves in this time and place because the only time we have is now and how we had this sense of belonging to our country. And in in the essay that I wrote, um, I spoke about how when I would go to these Western institutions and to schools that I felt displaced. 
I felt like I didn't belong because those systems were built on lies and built on the oppression of my people. And so in many ways, you know, it is about, and it is, it is truth-telling. It is absolutely truth-telling. You go to any Aboriginal community um, and they're straight up speaking the truth. And, of course, some stories are only for, you know, Aboriginal women or only for Aboriginal men. You know, uh, one of the yarns is my, my nan, she's, she, she's a medicine woman. She knows how to go bush and she knows how to um to get that and bring it back and she'll make bush medicine but right now that's something you know I'm 34 and it's she hasn't told me um how I'm allowed to do that yet until it's my time and I know that she will eventually lead me there but these are you know these stories in these yarns um are all about time and place and protocol and um, they are consistently, you know, burning within us. And I think that when I speak about the campfire, it's such a privileged place to be that it really is when it comes to truth-telling, the onus is no longer on us as First Nations peoples. You know, the onus is absolutely right now on non-Aboriginal Australia to show up um, and to and to also take onus for for the truth of their history, because that means unpacking what they've learned through through Western education, and then taking the action to to take accountability for for those stories and that truth of our history. So. Yeah, you know, I remember sitting around the campfire. I'm from like a family of, I think my nun lost count. We've got over like 30 first cousins or something. I'm the eldest granddaughter. So, you know, it was, it wasn't, you know, it was also lots of ghost yarns. Like blackfellas love to tell ghost yarns. What and, are they? What are, yeah, what like are they yarns about? about the yowies and Yep. yarns about the clever man and you know they're very integral to to time and place of, of certain countries um in my essay as well I speak about my grandfather being born under a sacred uh, birthing tree um marked by carvings now that's a place only women aboriginal women are allowed to go to so um yeah, I mean, it was. I felt very vulnerable putting myself out there with with that, um, and it's really kind of, you know, serendipitous and and poetic, I guess, in many ways that um, we have now uh, culminated to this time and place and this moment where um, Aboriginal and and non-Aboriginal people are showing up for the reckoning whatever they call it. Are you happy to talk through what some of that vulnerability was? Because I'm sure it was big to write it and put it out there, but what what were some of the things going through your mind? Um, a lot of what was going through my mind was keeping the integrity um, of my grandfather's struggle and my family's struggle and not whitewashing that at all um, and allowing, you know, a bigger audience 
into that space um, because once it's out there, it is going to get critiqued or it is going to get commented on or it is going to get judged. And I knew when writing it, no matter what goes out there, it's true to myself and it's true to my my family and it's true to our struggle. Um, and I think one of the other things as well was that, you know, I have in so many ways juggled um, this, this privilege of being a lawyer that um, is, is part of a colonial project, you know? Like um, it's not uh, easy. It's not an easy job and every black follower out here is showing up in different spaces, whether it's the front line of protests or in a courtroom like I'm doing or in their families or, you know, Aboriginal people sitting inside cells right now still have the fight and fire within them. And I wanted to also express through that while I do have this responsibility um, being a lawyer that my ultimate um, obligation is to my people, to our struggle and to the fight for truth and justice. You talk about, um, and I love that sense, that stories have a time and place um, and that your auntie, your auntie, your nana, I don't remember Man. your medicine. Yeah, my nan. Your yeah. nan will tell you those stories when the time and place comes. Um, obviously, since we've spoken and you've mentioned the last couple of months, we there has been a uh, a time and place around Black Life Black Lives Matter, and here in Australia, we we have seen uh, protests and uh, more voices added to that story and that conversation, if we weave that sense of truth-telling um, and needing to tell the truth, what are some of the lies um, that maybe we need to confront, that we need to uh, understand more? Well, you know, this assumption that Australia was settled is a lie. It's not a settled nation at all. We are living through an invasion and that invasion started um, when, you know, we began to be colonised and and our, our lands were stolen and our people massacred. And I think that we need to confront that fundamental and foundational truth of this country because we haven't yet, this constant denial of our narrative, you know, and um, the the kind of grappling conversation that we're now having, even at a symbolic level about statues, you know, it's ridiculous. And for so many of us, those statutes, Yes, they represent invasion and colonisation, but they also depict and they're just the tip of the iceberg right now of a much deeper conversation 
that this country needs to have about the truth of our history. And we can't just have that conversation with the onus on us as First Nations peoples. The onus in that dialogue also must lie at the heart of the Australian people to show up and be there with us in that discomfort, um, but also um, with respect enough to be able to change the system, to redefine the structures and to be accountable for the invasion of our lands. You know, you don't just get to sugarcoat these narratives um, because when we have them and when we turn it into action, there must be accountability. You know, the rent has to be paid, um, that our lives do matter and we've been constantly saying that our lives matter from the moment that our world changed here on this continent. And the trajectory of our journey has been quite interesting because what we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement in America, it has predominantly been dictated by African Americans. And it's interesting because I was looking and asking friends the other day, where do the Native Americans um, or the sovereign natives of that continent um, fall within this discussion? You know, where are their voices? Um, we've seen the Navajo Nation um, in North America through the COVID-19 pandemic lose so many of their First Nations, you know, at times hundreds a day. And while Black lives absolutely matter, we still need to be very vigilant of what kind of voices we raise within these debates because, um, you know, we have constantly constantly been saying, hear us, like, we, we do matter, like recognise that we matter and turn that into action. And um, I think that when you look back at the history of movements, even in the early 60s, late 60s and early 70s, um, it was the black civil rights movement in America that uh, kind of mobilised, uh, you know, the black Panthers chapters um, over on that continent, but it also mobilised it here in Australia. Um, and then through those movements, off the back of those movements, we have witnessed huge structural changes, um, which saw 1967 referendum, for example, in the middle of the global civil rights movement be the most successful referendum in Australian history. And so I think what we really need to do is we need to make sure that when we are, um, you know, discussing these movements that we're actually discussing them with the context of our struggle. Um, while there is solidarity globally, the trajectory of our movements uh, are different and they are legally different in so many ways because um, 
what we saw then off the back of that was the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And so we know that there is always a lust from the Australian people to show up in these spaces. What we've learned is that the government will never, ever deliver accountability unless we build the collective power with our Australian comrades to push them there and shove them to the moment um, that is the absolute reckoning. And right now that means power, accountability, self-determination into the hands of First Nations. And this conversation has um, now kind of escalated to the point where you know, there's a symbolic argument at one end of the, the spectrum and then at the other end of the spectrum there is this conversation about systemic racism. And we, if you look at it on a spectrum, that we're probably still towards the symbolic end um, right now because we need to hit the conversation higher up towards the systemic racism to be able to activate structural change. I'm certainly um, I'm nodding my head because I feel like that rings true as well and, and talking to friends of mine um, almost feel like there's a collective kind of holding breath uh, and I mean that from a perspective of um well, you know, I'll just talk from my perspective, a sense of I don't want this to be symbolic. I don't want this to be tokenistic. Um, we saw on a particular Tuesday, you know, black um, black squares on Instagram that kind of went around and then, you know, the wrong hashtags and then, you know, this kind of this sense of well, is it a bit symbolic? Um, and so wanting to... I don't know, not want to say the wrong thing, don't want to ask the wrong thing, but also um, the holding breath for not wanting to just say it because it's trendy, um, if I can use that word. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do get there is a sense um, amongst people that I've spoken to of um, what matters, uh, but also there is power in that symbology as well. There is a voice, there is a presence um, and even back to the statues, like that's, it's such a small part I'm sure of the thing that you're trying to achieve and it's, it is a step um, to recognise and I would love nothing more. I guess my curiosity f- for me is going, well, who, who are the, the, the Aboriginal uh, Indigenous people that, whose stories I need to know? who have done amazing things, who, uh, you know, whose stories need to be woven into the the history of of this place. Um, And so I understand when you talk about that continuum, uh, that 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 symbology up to really making changes, does it feel like it's the start of a move up to to shifting that systemic uh, racism or... Does it feel like there's a long way to go from where you're you're sitting? Well, I think that um, we absolutely need to maintain the pressure, um, and that means um, not letting 
politicians diffuse our moment, our collective moment, and not letting, um, you know, their comments slip a slide without accountability. And I think it's really important for people who are showing up and aiming for that structural change that, you know, you need to know every single action matters. It does not matter how big or small it is, that applying pressure can happen in so many different ways, shapes and forms, and that we have to continually now um, make sure that everything we do is mobilised around Black Lives Matter because if we do that, we know all lives matter, you know. We need to make sure that if we shift up that spectrum towards structural change, that we're bringing all of our children along on that journey, you know. And one thing I'm really tired about is people telling us that now is not the time or wait your time. And you know what? Like, it's not just First Nations peoples that are ready, it's the Australian people that are ready to step up and have this discussion and stand in solidarity with us. I think the one frustrating part is it does, you know, um, take a struggle to shift political ideology. But even if you look back from even a year or two, um, the discussion for, if you look at, take the example of a First Nations voice, every single Prime Minister, which included Malcolm Turnbull and now Morrison, have dismissed it. But every little action, whether it's big or small, has made sure that the people have kept this on the political agenda. And we might not know it or feel it day to day, but it is absolutely happening. And um, I think that often what, you know, Australians can get complacent about their power. And if you're from a privilege, if you're coming from a privileged position, it's easy to forget your power because you're not affected by racism or systemic racism. And so it's easy to let things slip aslide. But I absolutely have hope um, in the people because every time, and you know, I, I or and other activists have elevated their voice, we know that the people are way ahead of the politicians. And... Um, you know, yeah, I, I think that it can be frustrating when the conversation is is around this symbolism. Like I've done so many uh, interviews in the past week or two and every journalist wants to talk about the statues. I'm like, can we not talk about the statues? <laughs> or if you're going to talk about them, talk about the underlying structural problem. Because if a prime minister of this country can get up in front of a media pack and say that slavery never happened in this country, 
That's a lie. That is an absolute lie. And we should each, you know, be interrogating um, those comments much deeper than uh, the debate just about statues. In other countries, they're having, you know, they're creating um, lynching museums. And in Canberra, we can't even get a frontier war memorial. So I think we do have a lot of work to do and together we can do it and we will do it. Um, But I think it's important people, you know, if you're showing up in different spaces and if, you know, the movement is about posting a black cube or whatever, it's still sending a message. It's still sending a collective message that, you know, that the collective is here and they're ready for change. And I think that's what's so powerful about um, the movement right now is it's probably the first time in, in my life where there has been a roadmap to this. You know, let's give us, put it to a referendum. We'll fight for it. As Australians, we'll fight for it. We know that politicians have never ever handed First Nations anything. If you look at the history of our struggle, it's been through litigation or it's been through frontline activism where white people have turned up at protests en masse and it's taken the politicians' time to catch up to us. I love that. We know how to fight is what I'm hearing from that. Um, I mean, the other thing I took away from our last conversation was was also um, on that continuum from symbolic to systemic change, that uh, it's not walking away when, when it gets hard, when the conversation gets hard or when the work gets hard, that's when it's almost kind of time to to rub our hands together and and, and you know, jump into what's what's next. Um, I mean, some of it is the statistics and statistics that continue to. I probably feel embarrassed about them as a as a nation. I mean, even when COVID nineteen hit, um, we we heard that the vulnerable people in our community uh, were the elderly, those over seventy, and if you're Aboriginal, over fifty. And that 20-year gap uh, was kind of just a comment. It was something that was just said um, without without any explanation as though that's just the way it is. Um, I know one of the, the big areas that, that you do a lot of work in is Indigenous uh, people in incarceration and the, the numbers that are going up, let alone deaths in custody here in Australia. Um Again, which of those or how many more of those statistics do we, uh, you know, it's critical for us to hear, to be to be awoken, to be shook up by um, when you, when, yeah, when you hear that statistic and, and even that COVID-19 number, where does that sit for you? Well, that's the thing, you know, it has become so commonplace in this country to have us die 20 years younger, and that become an acceptable part of our nation's narrative. 
And the fact that no one gets outraged about that is um, really scary as a black fella and an activist. Is that you know, media? Is that privilege? Is that complacency? What do you think underpins I mean, that? You white people would have to ask yourself, what is that? Like what is with the lack of outrage and feelings for our lives? I mean, the thing is, I do think people are now starting to become more, I get turning their minds to it. Um, but that took that took a, a movement in America for people to think twice about what was happening here. You know, we had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in the 90s. There were 339 recommendations from that. What ends up happening is that people go, oh, they were with the police, they must have done something wrong or it could never have been the police. But, um, you know, that level of acceptancy of authority in this country is scary because um, in those spaces there's always a lack of accountability when we die. Um, And it's, you know, and it's constantly been since invasion. You know, in, in states it was legal to, to kill us, in, um, to hunt us down as animals. You know, here in New South Wales, I remember being in high school and my grandfather um, fighting to get his stolen wages back. That's slavery, you know. He worked his life to build the back of the economy of this country and he never got paid for it when, you know, white people benefited off that. The other part of that is we were on the front line of the war defending this continent and we came back to a country that didn't even recognise us as humans and that because of who we are and by virtue of being Aboriginal, we never got what non-Aboriginal uh soldiers got in terms of land or or pay or you know not even being able to sit at a bar with their non-aboriginal comrades and I just think that for so long now we have copped this narrative and lack of accountability and that we need to ensure that we're translating our actions into structural change so some people will like well what does that mean With my journey at Heart to Heart and through these conversations, I've committed myself to two systemic changes. That's the Wallama Court at the New South Wales District Court level. That's a court set to divert Aboriginal people away from the the justice system. And it is the enshrinement of a First Nations voice in the Constitution as the second structural change. They are huge changes. I'm not going to be able to do them alone. But I think one of the things is they have, people underestimate how much work they took to get them to even be formulated as ideas. Um, 
And it's been so nice at Heart to Heart because so many people have um, inboxed me and said they've written to their local member or they've written to New South Wales Parliament or they've written, you know, to um, their federal member. And I just think that those actions mean so much when you're having the conversation as well in the context of your own families. I'd love to talk through both of those. And as you say, just getting to those helps then give clarity on action. Um, And they won't be everything that needs to change, but I love that commitment from yourself. When you talk about the Wallamar Court, uh, what does the word Wallamar mean? So the word Wallamar is a Darug word that was gifted um, to the working party when we tried to conceive this idea and it means to return or to come back. And so we've designed a court that ensures that the purpose of this court is to ensure Aboriginal people return to the safety of their communities um, and reconnect with their identity. And it's a basic proposal. You know, in New South Wales, we already have what we call the drug court, um, and that's open to all defendants. And what is great about that court, though, is it recognises the underlying behaviours um, that bring people before this kind of system, and in this instance, substance misuse. And um, it's a hybrid of that and an Aboriginal sentencing court that allows elders and respected people to be part of the process. But it also recognises that it's not just a defence lawyer that is going to be able to solve, you know, this sentence while we guide it and we have the legal skill set. It might be that people um, need more. It might be that they need an Aboriginal mentor or a friend to be in that court with them. It might mean that they need a civil lawyer that can help them with their housing. Um, It may mean that they need better access to a GP or a mental health service. So making sure that we create a a cultural safe space around um, people that are brought before the courts Because we know that the criminal courts in particular are the very blunt end of the system. By the time, you know, people don't choose to come to court. By the time they get there, so many other things have gone wrong for them, whether they've lost their children or whether they've been dispossessed from their country or whether they are the son or the daughter of a mother, father and grandfather that have also been locked up in their lifetime. Aboriginal people are more likely to suffer from those statistics because of the nature of over-policing. So the idea behind it is to disrupt this system, is to disrupt and dismantle the disproportionate impact that it has, and it's to recognise that, you know, this intergenerational trauma is perpetrated by these systems. And unless we bring them to a halt, 
uh, and aim to divert people back into their community, then we're not going to be able to build communities because can people continually get sent to prison. And it brings us back to this issue of parliaments and in particular state parliaments funding, you know, prisons where there is an emphasis on these kinds of consequences, then um, it's easier. It's just easy to get rid of the problem, so-called problem, and put people in prison when it costs more to put them in prison than it is to reconnect them with their community and their families and their identity. So will it have, is it a combination of um, still going through the justice system but looking at more options around where people might? So it's the exact same options as any defendant but it's a process to ensure that the story and life of an Aboriginal person is taken into account on the evidence and sentencing because right now what we see is there's so much pressure in the court system on us as defence lawyers um, and also on judicial officers to get through matters that you often don't have the time to have dialogue or these conversations. So it's really about creating space. It's about creating space to ensure that the maximum amount of evidence can be put on the record and in order for the court to make the right decision um, that we are doing everything we can to bring those stories of Aboriginal people to the court because there are lots of people who have never gone to an Aboriginal community who don't know the stories about how these systems impact on us. And, you've, you know, you said earlier it's the statistics. It, it is statistics, but there's stories behind these statistics that we're not, we're not hearing. And so it's really, it's a really reasonable proposal. You know, we can save money, we can stop, you know, sending people to prison. And in that instance, we should return um, to ensure that we're building communities and not prisons. Where are you up to with that? Like where, at what stage uh, are you in that process? Well, I, I started, you know, assisting the the judge who's chair um, of this in 2015 I think it was and it took us because we all have done it in our own time um, out of the love of um, mob and wanting to to and well and seeing the need to change because the status quo just wasn't working the statistics kept going up And so from that time as researcher, then defence lawyer, we created the business case in 2018, which we developed and is with the New South Wales State Parliament now. Um, And we're really now at the point of trying to mount the pressure for the political decision to be made and for the legislation to pass. Because 
what also doesn't seem to uh, create the change for politicians is all of the evidence and all of the statistics can can see it, but unless they're pressured into into making a change, nothing happens. For example, the New South Wales Drug Court has proven it can decrease um, recidivism by 37%. So if you were to combine the power of that model with the authority of our Aboriginal elders um, and the importance of reconnection and returning, you know, the concept of Walama, it is a powerful force. And so sometimes you just think, do these, do, do politicians want us locked up? Do they want us to, to never, you know, have our liberty? Because we have done the hard work. We have absolutely done the hard work. And now we're calling on, you know, people who are listening here um, to, to hold these people to account in terms of acting in the public interest. You know, when it comes to black lives and Aboriginal lives in Australia, it's bizarre. There's this assumption that we're all equal before the law when that's absolutely not the case. So more pressure, more letters, more conversations. Um, you obviously uh, were part of the, the Black Lives Matter protest in, uh, in Sydney. What was that experience like for you and, and was there anything that surprised you about that experience? Well, on Gadigal country, um, you know, the, the night before, we had witnessed New South Wales police make an application to the New South Wales Supreme Court um, to have the protest unauthorised. And so the night before the protest was about to start, um, it was the Supreme Court who had made the decision to unauthorise the protest. And while protesting generally is about I'm not accepting your law, I'm pushing back anyway, I mean, what, so I don't think it was even going to stop protesters, but the consequence could be very real in the sense that the consequence of an authorised or an unauthorised protest in this instance meant that the police could have more power to arrest and detain people. And that's a systemic problem, right? And um, for me uh, and my partner, I mean, we had already made the decision that we would show up to the protest anyway, um, but ensure that we complied with COVID-19 rules um, and that our health was absolutely first and we would never advocate for any, you know, elders who were unwell or our mob who were unwell to show up. But I think that, um, you know, we, we went and just before the then um, court, New South Wales Court of Appeal ruled that the protest was authorised, we had just arrived and there was already thousands nervous? and thousands of people there. That's amazing. Were you nervous in the anticipation, realising it had been unauthorised, knowing 
what that means from a from a legal point of view. Was there a sense of, um, I guess, yeah, fear or nerves from from your perspective? Well, I think about the struggle of um, our lives in Australia, and I mean, our ancestors never back down from a battle because it was lawful or unlawful. And there's been many Aboriginal people who lost their liberty um, as a result, but that was exactly what the protesting was about. Um, I think that, you know, in my view, activism doesn't always fit nicely within the law and um, while I have an obligation to be a lawyer that I think changing the system is is even more important and I think where I'm able to navigate those spaces um, with reason and and I know that showing up into those spaces such as protests, any protest comes with risk, um, but you're there to fight for justice and sometimes the law doesn't always deliver justice. But I must admit when uh, the protest was deemed authorised, the elation in Sydney on Gadigal country was really raw and real and people, um, you know, when it was announced at the protest that the Supreme Court of Appeal had authorised it, there was this real sense of, um, you know, once again the court system has stood with us. It has absolutely been much more progressive than politicians. If you look at something, you know, many of us know of the Mabo decision, or particularly Mabo number two. It was the High Court who uh, who made, you know, the decision and who said that terra nullius was a myth, that this land did not belong to no one. There absolutely did belong to, um, you know, the Torres Straits and the people of that country. and. Um, what you what we know in Australia as black activists is that when we lawyer up, when we get you know our arguments into court, that it's generally the court system that is ahead of the politicians, and then we have a reaction from the politicians. That has to stop. That reliance on the risk of litigation and being in courts, you know it. It is a risk. And I think the whole point of advocating for the enshrinement of a First Nations voice is to ensure that there's durability and sustainability in what we say and that this is a political voice and that we shouldn't have to rely on the courts or the judicial system to argue our way through that system to be heard. So it's shifting that and it's creating a structural change and we, we must fight for this. We, we must and we will. And one of the things you're calling for in that is a referendum um, 
and a, an opportunity for the Australian people to to put it to a vote uh, for for First Nations people to be recognised in the in the constitution. Um, if people are hearing it, this and going, "Yep, I'd vote." Um, again, what could they do? Well, they have to keep advocating for that, for the voice to be enshrined. You know, it is the people who are voting for their elected members, they have to make sure that their elected members are acting in their interest. I mean, it sounds so simple and it actually is simple. It's not a complex issue at all. What makes it complex is political ideology. You know, this ideology on the right, which is the liberals, which is focused on the economy and neoliberalism. That's the hard work, shifting that kind of um, philosophy and ideology around politics. Um, I think that you know, even progressives on the far left can be frustrating with their ideology because sometimes they know what's best for us when no one either side seems to be listening. And so I think that this is actually making um, the Australian people go, what do I do? Well, you know, the system is basically built on a representative democracy, which means you're voting, which means use your vote wisely, but also organise in your communities. You know, organise your actions. Don't wait for us as Aboriginal people um, to tell you how to organise. Someone um, said to me really interestingly, You know, I don't live in a bubble. I also have white friends. But, like, it's true. One of my friends said to me, you know, I really love your work, but I really realised there's so many spaces um, that I have access to that you don't. And, you know, they said they realised that that's actually where the work needs to happen. And I said, yeah, like, with you know, your families or whoever their friends are, you have to be creating space for these conversations and you have to be uh, mobilising. Mobilise your lives and organise your lives around what you can do as collectives in your neighbourhoods, in your communities. It might even start with your book club. And it is these hard conversations. It's stepping into it. We were only saying before we hit record um, that, you know, even from our last kind of conversation, the the last podcast that we did, it shook me. Yeah, I walked out of it and went, oh, (laughs) there were moments of feeling really uncomfortable but in a really, really good way and your your generosity in the face of my ignorance – is extraordinary and I, you know, again with um, in the recent recent weeks I definitely wanted to have another conversation and, and so you know this platform is available anytime you want to have a conversation because um, I think what it, one of the things it awoken for me was again just how little I know um, and how blind I am um, 
but also just how many more conversations to have. I know I've had some some amazing feedback from that conversation. I know you have as well. Um, from my perspective, it almost felt like it was a bit of an example of how to step into these hard conversations, how how to ask the, the questions um, that in hindsight, you know, come through a place of privilege because that's all – we know, uh, but with respect, we can we can have these conversations, and they ha- they are the hard conversations. But it is okay to step into them. In fact, it's really important to. Um, I wanted. I was interested to get your sense of, I guess you know, using our conversation as a bit of a a, a bubble and your experience of that, but also some of the feedback that you've had on on why you think it's resonated with people. Yeah, I think, you know, I didn't anticipate um, that our yarn would resonate with so many other people. And I think the reason it has resonated because you and I both gave ourselves permission to feel the discomfort and that discomfort and feeling that doesn't mean that we don't respect each other. Um, but it means that we're allowing our minds to shift um, and to create action within ourselves. And I do think, you know, it is because you're a white privileged woman and I'm an Aboriginal woman from very different worlds um, that we're able to have an uncomfortable conversation but also show up for each other um, with the respect and dignity that each of us deserve because while you've recognised maybe you might have to change or I need to shift my activism um, because that's constantly changing as well, that, um, yeah, the importance, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of these spaces and of these conversations and that um, the hard work actually happens after these chats. Like, you know, we constantly have um, non-Aboriginal people asking us what to do, but I think they can also forget that we have a lot of work to do in our own communities. You know, we're not just here to answer your questions because we want you guys to be creative and stand with us in your spaces. Like so much of our activism is also black politic. You know, that's what you guys don't get to see and I think that we all need to take care of our health and our um, ourselves in this struggle because it's us against the system. It's not us against each other and that Blackfellas are showing up every day in so many different spaces They're not just showing up on the front line of protests. You know, we're showing up in our jobs where we're confronted with racism. We're showing up for our children and our jarjams who, like the other week, the weekend of the protest, um, my partner and I were taking my niece and nephew down the beach and a, um, a police car pulled up. And the instinct of my niece was to run to me, you know, was to run and hold my hand and grab me because she felt she needed 
to run for safety. And I think that, um, you know, these conversations are so important, but we really need non-Aboriginal people to take initiative in creating space for these difficult conversations themselves because as black fellows we are we have a lot to do in our own communities for our own kids and a lot of that that is outside these systems for us is about healing those wounds you know our, our children shouldn't be reacting like that no like when that, you take your kids outside and when they see the police mm. do your kids run no, that breaks my heart. Like there's, there's, yeah, there's um, when you talk about inter intergenerational trauma, that's that's the the outward expression of some of that, isn't it? It's that's mm. that's tough to to be and and sit with, and and certainly from our last conversation, one of the things that really resonated in talking to you, um, I know it was the end of the day, I think, when we spoke, but um, just the sense of how tired you were, really got to me probably more than than anything was just, was just almost this sense of I'm I'm shattered I can't do it on my own um and we're going to f- need to find places for support and for other mm-hmm. people to step into these conversations um I think that call to wherever it is for you what that um and where you can um you know shake those conversations might be with family friends book club um, we, uh, we, you know, I've got a book club at the moment that, uh, that we're, um, looking at a few different titles, um, for that reason. Uh, I know you've, one of the other Instagram accounts you've got is, um, Blackfella Book Club. That's right. Yeah. So if anyone wants any inspiration, then we'll definitely put all the links, um, to, to that as well. Uh, but it is about, again, I, you know, I think some of that holding breath can be, well, is it okay? Can I, you know, is it okay if I, if I do this, if I, um, if I spruke it here? And one of the things I mean by that is, and I had this conversation only uh, a week or so ago, um, and I'd be really interested to get your your take on it. Um, is is around acknowledgement of of country? Uh, it's something again since our conversation. I've made a commitment to every. We do a lot of training. Um, sessions and whilst that a lot of those have been virtual in the last couple of months not face to face I am have made it a priority to acknowledge country um, at the start of every single one of those and uh, was talking to a white friend of mine who said you know and I, I just described like I prior to that I wasn't sure whether I could whether I should again this tokenistic um, who's this white privileged uh, female talking about an acknowledgement of land um, and uh, yeah she described feeling the same way is that something that you know is tokenistic um, or is it is it something that is helpful and so I get I am probably poorly asking this but I think one of the things can be is it you know where is where is that line where is that uh, important to show up, um, but also recognizing that, and and probably to your point earlier, it's not it's not my ancestral story. Um, my ancestral story is Scotland, 
and island <laughs> um, and yet there there is still this is where my kids grow up this is the land and the country that I am a part of um, so where for you in I guess hearing some of that um, and I guess the call for um, as all Australians to to bring their own activism where they are um, what would you say to that hesitation that might be, can I do this? Yeah, like your question is so important and it's so common. So don't feel stupid about that question. But um, look, I think people need to um, understand the purpose behind an acknowledgement um, and how ancient that protocol is and it is a gift to be able to do it. Um, I had a com similar conversation with someone else as well because I think that, you know, I've been into meetings and people have gone, acknowledge country, blah, blah, blah. Unless the work you are doing constantly is dismantling this racism and this feeling um, of dispossession, then I think acknowledgements will remain tokenistic until we fundamentally um, are beginning to ensure that our work is about decolonizing as well so that the acknowledgement is not a disconnect from the things that you're doing um, in your work. And I think, though, another part of that um, element to that is that ensuring that your acknowledgement is personal. Like, sure, you can acknowledge country, but what does that mean to you as maybe a coloniser or, you know, for your children. There were colleagues that were telling me about their children doing this and for children it's just second nature to them because of the way they, you know, they're now learning the truth of our history. And for us, in whether I'm observing it um, or doing it, or seeing it happen, um, it can come across as tokenistic, but it doesn't have to be. I think people can personalise it in so many different ways. Professor Mark McKenna, who's a professor at the University of Sydney, um, he expresses uh, the acknowledgement of country having developed into tokenism because people don't fundamentally acknowledging their words or what they do that this land was taken without consent and we're at the beginning of these difficult conversations and it starts with acknowledging the truth of the country that you're on i think that if you're if people are feeling uncomfortable then that means that they have to do more work um, in these spaces in and of themselves and that they need to remember their story and their journey um, when 
acknowledging country what impact their story has had. And I also think that it will never feel tokenistic if you know the land that you're on. If you know the land and you have a connection to the elders um, and the country, or if you're able to sit and ground your feet into the country and understand the journey of the ancestrals kind of links and ties to that country, it will, an acknowledgement will never feel tokenistic because it is so powerful. It is an ancient protocol of the First Nations across this country. And perhaps unpacking that um, and learning, you know, what the traditional names of the beaches are or the traditional names of some sites um, or where and if a massacre did occur on that country, that that's incorporated into your acknowledgement. Um, and also, like for me, it's about also including my traditional language and my native tongue. And so I think if you intertwine it and don't see it as anything separate to your life and your children and what they're learning, if they're learning language, it will never be tokenistic at that point. But I think we all have a lot of work to do with that. And it's just the start of the work we have to do. Yeah, asking those those questions um, even deeper around that cultural what happened here? What happened on the land? What, you know, what uh, the the mob that were there, what were they known for? What did they use the land for? And the landscapes, like the landscapes tell really powerful stories. The rivers, the mountains, the ocean. It is all connected, you know, from the first sunrise to the last sunset. That's what I say to my sisters. And I just think that you know, my my niece and nephew are very lucky because they go to a school where they're able to learn their traditional tongue. But they are constantly, you know, acknowledging the country that they're on through the landscape. And they know the rivers that mark the land and the ocean and it's just part of them. And I just think that your kids will absolutely probably be there before you. So I said to my colleague the other day, I was like, um, you should probably ask your kids for advice because they're way ahead of us. I go home now, you know, when I was at school, we, I didn't even know what a welcome to country was. That's how, you know, things have changed. And I go home now and I was invited to speak at some of our old school assemblies and the kids are getting up and doing welcomes in Wiradjuri language. You know, it's such a shift. And that shift is happening in you, in me, every day. Yeah, I'm up, I'm up for more shifts like that. And, and I have no doubt that I will be schooled by my kids <laughs> for years to come um, on a number of things. One of the things you wrote about in the essay that you had that you wrote um, in the Griffith Review that came out in January was around the campfire of your youth. You described learning the the skill of listening and the art of hearing 
Um, and I think in some ways that kind of sums up a little bit of what we're talking about is that skill of listening and really that the art of of hearing. Um, what what do you think sits behind those, or where does that what's what's next for you in your um, listening and hearing? Uh, journey in terms of your activism so there's a lot of showing up and there's a huge amount of work to do and there's hard conversations and hard work to do but in that that listening and hearing uh what's next for you the the art of listening and hearing is a constant process um you know and it's on many levels for me it's not just listening and hearing what's on social media. I've been personally on a huge journey myself um, with healing and with connecting to my inner voice and, um, you know, and understanding and looking to my ancestors for, um, for guidance and it is constantly that feeling in my tummy or following my intuition uh, that is what I am actually listening and hearing. When I say that and what I've learned is that it's not just what others are saying, it's what I'm feeling. And I think that that's the gift of being a black woman is that we have this spiritual power. You know, some people would probably say if the first time they've heard me speak that I'm crazy right now. But there is a very deep uh, connection that happens when we sit in our silence as an Aboriginal person. And that just doesn't come from nowhere. That comes from what has culminated into this time, place and space. And while we now have many different forms of mediums like social media, TV, uh, text, phone calls, that's just the physical part of us. That is absolutely just what we are physically seeing and hearing. And for so many of us, um, especially as Aboriginal women who are able to connect or have the privilege of speaking and, you know, to our matriarchs, you know, I can ring my nan and she seems to know how I'm feeling or thinking or I can hear how she is feeling and thinking through her voice or we don't even have to be talking for me to know if I need to check in with her. And I think as humans we all have that capacity but when, um, you know, particularly the changes in society, in physical society through uh, COVID that has in the pandemic that has made us slow down a bit. Um, it's also given me space to connect with that spiritual side of myself. And um, it's, it's interesting because when I am listening and feeling to those things, 
it can sometimes be really crippling. Like, you know, it can be that feeling of do I make that phone call now and have that conversation with that person? And following my instincts and trusting my intuition um, is something that I am more and more connected to uh, and and really, you know, space is created when I do that and it comes through with these kinds of conversations. And I think that one thing that Australia in general in its physical form has not done well is it's not listened to our storytelling and the spiritual um, connection that that has the power to bring um, us all together. Yeah, and it requires space and time and presence um, to to sit, to sit in the discomfort of our own intuition, our own voice. Um, so much easier just to go tell me what to do or we'll just do what we've always done. It's so much easier in the short term. Uh, but there's a lot to learn on an individual level, on a family level and on a systemic level of um, of tuning into those stories and tuning into and you know some of those intuitions. Look, I want to um, tell it's been such a delight to connect with you again. Um, I want to come full circle. Obviously, the name of this this podcast is called Standout Life. I usually ask people. What does it mean to live a standout life, which I did last time? Uh, one of the things that you are really calling and, and almost and becoming a bit of a catch cry around people showing up, when you hear that term, uh, what does it mean to, to show up? It means to be present for this struggle, whether that's physically at a protest, whether that's calling out racism in your families or in your workspaces, but it also means showing up for yourself and checking in with yourself, like constantly. And I think that um, there are many different layers when I say that, because we don't just show up one day, you know, we're constantly having to check ourselves on the daily to, to ensure that we are all in this right, you know, on the right side of justice together. Because one of the things in the struggle is I feel like as blackfellas, it's not until there's trauma or there's a death or something really horrible happens in our community, do the Australian people kind of hit the media or the waves, you know, um, to trigger something within them. I think that showing up now is really about a turning point. You know, it's not waiting for the next Aboriginal death in custody, that it's absolutely going that this is a higher moral issue in our hearts and in the country's, you know, makeup that we have to fundamentally address the structural change to ensure that we as a nation can heal. 
And that's why I called Heart to Heart a journey, you know, this journey to healing our nation because I think the discomfort is sure. It's just the first step. We need to ensure that we are translating that and that we're showing up not just when it looks good either, you know, um, so many of us cry ourselves to sleep that people don't see. There's so much of my life um, that is not in the media or that is not glamorous, for example. Lots of people see what I write and think that's great, but not lots of people see me daily, you know, dialing into a police cell to see and advise my client on on how to get them out of there. And it doesn't mean because no one's not seeing me that I'm not showing up entirely for that person. And I think that people really need to just ensure that when we say show up, that we're doing it in every single capacity possible. Yeah, there's healing, healing required. Tila, thank yeah. you so much for your time. Next time we get to do this face-to-face and I'll give you a hug. Yes. <laughs> I've loved I it know. again. The, the world is so different. I miss my friends. I miss, you know, face-to-face yarns that we had. I remember now, you know, how how um, special that, that yarn was when we first met. Yeah, it was very cool. Because sometimes, you know, hindsight's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. Um, and I miss the kind of activism that we always had, which so much for me was jumping on a plane on the weekend and FIFOing to have that personal connection with people because we shouldn't allow this period to, to stop us from connecting on that personal level. And I do think that the physical show up is is so powerful, um, and that we shouldn't let you know the pandemic um, stop our hopes for a better day when we will win a referendum and we will all physically be able to hug and cry together. I'll be there. I'll be there for that. (laughs) Thanks so much, Sheila.